And now let's try and tune in to no good music from an undisclosed location somewhere in New Jersey. That style, playing guitar. When that comes on, you're out on the dance floor. Miami still rocks, man. Am I going to listen to this again? And that's definitely going to be a theme. (laughs) (laughs) You can't make this shit up. No. everybody this is rob and jeremy and we have hit a new plateau we are on show 50 Woo! and today um it's going to be a two-parter so it'll be show 50 50 and 51 and we're going to be talking about the universal monster movies which we're very excited to talk about yes because for october if you've been a listener a long time you know we do some horror we also do some music stuff. And I we, think we're going to be able to cross this one over onto my other podcast as well, the HorrorCon Lounge. Mm-hmm. So this this will be a double duty episode. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be a crossover yeah. episode. But we're going to start with uh, some new music. New music. I can't talk right. New music that I've been listening to lately or have found. I don't have much on this one, but Stained has a new album out called Confessions of the Fallen. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the first album in 12 years. Nice. I didn't realize that. Yeah. And I wasn't a huge Stain fan, but I did listen to it. It's, it sounds like them. It's right on, right on point. So if you like Stain, check that out. Uh, August 3rd, we had a band that I've loved for a long time, The Replacements. Mm-hmm. And it's not a new one. Because, of course, they haven't been together in a long time. But it's their album, Tim. And it's the Let It Bleed edition. It's a combination. Uh, we have the 11 original songs, but they're remixed versions uh, by producer Ed Stasium. And there's remastered versions, demos, alternative versions, and live versions. So is it like a garage band style CD or... Yeah, they were they were pretty much a garage band, especially this album. Okay. Until they got more a little bit more mainstream, but it's interesting listening to the live because I saw them back in the eighties, and they were really into drinking as much as they could <laughs> and getting drunk. And I listened to a couple live, and oh my god, I can't believe they included them. But that's part of their history. I'm serious. You listen to these songs, you know they're drunk. They're mess. They're like Paul Westerberg, the singer. He's not singing that great. And they're, <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, sometimes raw albums are great yeah. for you know, kind of that appeal of you know, just yeah. hearing it fresh and not mm-hmm. you know, studio covered up and all that fun stuff. Yeah. So, <laughs> but it kind of captures them at before they got, I think, a bigger record deal. Gotcha. You know, then okay. they, I think they might have cleaned it up a little bit, but. Paul Westerberg did some songs for singles, that movie. His solo stuff is really good. 
So then, uh, let's see, September 22nd. Oh, that was the Stained album. <laughs> Came out September 22nd. Just wanted to make sure you emphasized to check out that Stained album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> On Stained, um, I have here, check out Here and Now. That's like my favorite song off of there. Okay. And it reminds me of Creed. And another song is Better Days. That's a good song. Moody Girl, Music Alert. I couldn't take it. I couldn't take it. You know how I like Moody Girl music? Uh-oh. You know, like Phoebe Bridger stuff. And uh-huh. I guess you could put Taylor Swift in there and oh boy. some stuff. Who? But I've we got Soccer Mommy. Oh, this is a Taylor Swift-free podcast, do we? <laughs> She's being talked about way too much that we don't need to talk about her. Is she dating Travis Kelsey or something? I don't know. Okay. I thought I might have heard that, but... I watched a Today Show, and I... I'm I'm about to watch something else in the morning because the every day this week, every day this week, I've never seen them cover something like that. Well, I've enjoyed your, you've had a couple of posts <laughs> here and there about it, and I yeah. incorporated Jethro Tull lyrics onto one of your yeah. pictures. <laughs> yeah. Taylor Swift sitting on a park bench. Yeah. Yep. She's eating, look, looks like a yogurt or something. Breaking news. There's a, it's not a band, it's a girl, but she goes by the name Soccer Mommy. Hmm. She has a new EP called Karaoke Night, and that came out September 22nd, and check out the song, Only Me When I'm With You, and I have here, the chorus really kicks moodiness in the ass. All right. Yeah. Now, this is an interesting one. Have you ever heard of Oliver Tree? No. Oh, my God. His album came out September 29th, Alone in a Crowd. Now, I think he's released some singles off of this like months ago, and videos. He's a very odd guy. I can't even, like, you have to watch his videos. He's got this um, wig on, and he's got, like, an oversized, like, jumpsuit on. Mm -hmm. The wig is, like, if you get a bowl cut, haircut. (laughs) And he's not really, if you think Vanilla Ice meets Eminem meets Weezer meets the Backstreet Boys. (laughs) <laughs> yes, okay. it's that odd. <laughs> now, he's labeled as alternative, but more electronic, like dance. Uh, lyrics are pretty, really simple lyrics. Clean. But I was surprised. There's a couple raunchy rap songs. Well, I guess That's not. what I'm okay. calling them now. All right. Which we don't really need. Most interesting to go with this podcast is he has a song called Invisible Man. Oh, all right. He says, in the chorus, I am the invisible man. If you look, you will find me. Say hi when you can. See how the lyrics are pretty simple. I could have written them. Um, (laughs) But check out the video for uh, Miss You on YouTube. You will not be disappointed. Okay. And you're going to go, what the fuck? Oliver Tree, Miss You. Yes. Got it. Okay. Rolling Stones, October 20th, Hackney Diamonds. Now, the first single was Angry, which I, I love that song. Classic Stones. I think the last album they released was a blues album, and that was a while ago. And I think we touched on this last one, but the drum, the original drummer is on a few of these songs, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and Charlie Watts is on most of them, I think. Okay. Because they started, obviously, recording this a while, a while ago. ago. Yeah. yeah, okay. But they just released a new single called Sweet Sounds of Heaven with Lady Gaga. Mm. Now, this song is... It's totally different than Angry. It's a soulful, bluesy song. And Lady Gaga doesn't sing any of the lyrics, but 
help sing the chorus. But it's a beautiful song. And she doesn't even come on until halfway through. The song is seven minutes and 23 seconds long. Yikes. All right. This is a band, I think they're fairly new, um, called Ill Peach. Their new album comes out November 3rd. Now I have a little bit on them. The seed of Ill Peach, get it? Was first planted in the recording studios of New York City, where Pat Morrissey and Jess Carrazza were working together as professional songwriters, collaborating with artists like, I don't know who this person is, Icona Pop, SZA, no, SZA, is that SZA? I have no idea. Okay. ZA. Here's one we know. Oh my God. This stuff keeps popping up on the screen. Stop. And it's making noises. Okay. That's new music. Okay, we, what happened here? I don't know, you're talking about SZA. Oh my god, it's like highlighting everything, I can't... SZA. Hold on. Okay, here we go. And here's a band that they worked with that we know. Weezer, uh, Pharrell. Who? I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> then came the day they were offered their own publishing deal, and they said everybody kept saying, the stuff that you're writing is slightly too left of center, weirdo stuff. Why don't you start your own project? So believe it or not, I got permission from, because I always like to play the music and we can't play everything we talk about, of course. Right. But I got permission from Becca Flynn at Sub Pop Records to play part of the new song Heavyweight so everyone can hear Jess's great voice. This song is unique that the verses are just kind of, well, the music is just like plucked chords. But the song really picks up about two minutes in. And it's almost an orchestrated kind of feel to the song. And then the song comes back down at the end. Uh, it's a three-minute song, but we're going to play a little bit of Heavyweight. Heavyweight. I fell asleep I left the TV on Something's off Shaking Okay, so that was Heavyweight. Hopefully you like that. Ill Peach, check them out. Like I said, new album out November 3rd. Then we got Dolly Parton. We've talked about her before. Rockstar, November 17th. And she has released six songs from her new album so far. Well, why don't you just release the album? Now, I kind of like Dolly. I, I mean, I don't own anything by her. I feel this album's kind of similar to Frank Sinatra's duet album, which is gonna, I'm gonna talk about that album when we do the albums turning. I think his album is maybe 30. Okay. But Frank, Frank didn't record with the artist <laughs> in the studio, but I'm pretty sure Dolly did. And Dolly, just like Frank, is matched up with some artists that are somewhat opposite mm -hmm. of Dolly. Mm -hmm. I mean, Dolly's mostly country, so anything other than country would be, you know, opposite of her. I like her take on some of these songs. Um, you know, of course, you've never heard her sing before, so. Well, this started when she was elected into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? 
Yeah, she said, I guess I need to record a rock album. Yeah, so hats off to her for trying something different. Yeah. So we have Magic Man with Ann Wilson. Musically, this song, I wonder if it's the original music tracks. It is so good. Actually sounds better than the original. Now, Ann and Dolly, they share vocals, and they sound great together. And this one I was very impressed with. Um, We normally don't hear Dolly take her voice like higher than it needs to be and uh, this song like i was very blown away by dolly's vocal range like you don't realize how good of a singer she is i mean she kind of sounds like a chipmunk to me Mm -hmm. but and then we have we are the champions we will rock you now this is a song one of these songs i never need to hear again (laughs) unless you're at a sporting event and you can't get away but so i wasn't impressed by that Bygones, uh, Rob Halford from Judas Priest. Mm -hmm. Rob sounds great in this song. Interesting song. There's a song I never like, What's Up? (laughs) By Four Blondes. (laughs) And I think it's probably one of the most annoying songs to ever be written, besides every Alanis Morissette song. Wow. Yeah. But Dolly knocks this one out of the park. Did she tell us what's going on? (laughs) And I... Of course, she can sing a hell of a lot better than Linda Perry, who, I don't know what's up with that hat she wears. The video, she's in a bathtub, strumming her guitar. But I think Dolly actually improved this song. Hmm. And then we have Let It Be, which I was really interested in hearing. We have Sir Paul Hmm. and Ringo. Now, of course, we've all heard the song way too much with any Beatles song. Now, I never liked the ending. I always thought the song went on too long, you know? <laughs> yeah. Just like Hey Jude, I think that... How many times can you say Hey Jude? The song is 4 minutes and 28 seconds. It's actually a little longer than the original. Hmm. And the one thing, odd thing I heard when I listened to this song is in the beginning, there's the piano, and I swear the guy hits a wrong note. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. It, like, bothers me. I mean, maybe it was a mistake. They just left it in or something. I don't know. I'll have to go back and listen to it. I'd never notice that. Yeah. And then the piano is a little brighter on this one than the original. Um, maybe a little bit more reverb or something on it. I don't know. Hmm. But this is actually a really good version. And get this, Jeremy. The hmm. highlight of this song was always the guitar solo in that song. And who do we have playing the guitar solo? It's not Paul or Ringo. It's Peter Frampton. Ooh. I didn't know Peter Frampton was on this song. That's awesome. And Mick Fleetwood is also playing percussion on this song. Very cool. So that one I really enjoy. Let it, you got to check out Let It Be, Dolly Parton. There's a couple other albums. I'm not going to go into detail, but uh, there's a band called Wilco, which I don't know why. I wasn't into them when they came out. I think they've been around a while. But the last couple albums, I've seen them pop up and I listened to them. And I'm really starting to like Wilco. It's kind of um, mellow music. I don't know how you'd describe them. but And the lyrics are great, too. So that does it for the new music. Well, you have... Um, Unless Jeremy has something. You just mentioned Ann Wilson. She actually has a new album that just came out. Uh, it's called Another Door. So I don't know okay. if that Dolly Parton song is on there or not, but she's got a new one that's out. Well, that was Magic Man. I don't think that's on Anne's. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I have no idea. And then I love a group called Blackstone Cherry, and they've got a new album that's due to come out. 
I don't know the exact date, but that's on my radar. So hopefully within the next episode or two, I can give a review of that one. So before we get into the monster movie, we have a couple more things. One I like to talk about is this. It's called the Sphere. Sphere. <laughs> in Las Vegas. And I'm sure recently, last week or so, you've seen videos maybe. U2 is starting the residency there. They actually added dates into December. I don't know how long they're going on. Interesting. But I think the goal is that they'll have concerts there and maybe some visual there's something else going on there too besides the u2 because it's it projects all on the wall like the wall of this of the sphere mm-hmm. almost like a imax maybe but this thing is incredible it's um 366 feet high it's got five aura robots that will greet you it costs 2.3 billion dollars wow it's 168,000 square feet Actually, they have 168,000 square feet of puck, I guess hockey puck-sized LEDs, and 167,000 speakers. That's it? Yeah, 17,000 seats. And it is the largest sphere on Earth. Formerly, the largest was the Avisi Arena in Sweden, which was built in 1989. Now, that seats 16,000. Although I read that Metallica was the biggest concert there at 17,303. Wow. Pink Floyd was the first band. (laughs) If you hear a motorcycle, we have the window open. So Pink Floyd was the first band to play there in June of 89, and Bon Jovi was the second band to play there. I know you love that. (laughs) And U2 has also played there like three or four times. Okay. So I thought I mentioned the sphere. And next, we're going to do a top 10 that goes with the Universal Monster Movies. So now we're going to go through a top 10 list. And it's the 10 best songs about werewolves. This is from loudersound.com, September 2022, by Chris Chantler. And it's a, not sure if you say lupine, lupine playlist. Okay. Lupine comes from lupus. It's a Latin word for wolf. And it's related adjective, adjective is lupinus, wolfish. Mm. Yeah. So number 10 we have the band Iced Earth, which I never heard of. <laughs> nope, either. Called Wolf. Now it says the first and fastest track on Iced Earth's faintly retrograde horror show LP. The lyrics pay homage to the 1941 movie, echoing the poem written for the film. Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. Number nine, Metallica of Wolf and Man. This is on the Black Album, and uh, James Hetfield uses evocative lycanthrope imagery to draw parallels with his own burgeoning interest in shooting woodland creatures. 
I know the song, but I didn't know that. I might have to check out. Is that, I'm assuming there's some kind of music video on that one. Out I don't there. know. Interesting. He says, hair stand on the back of my neck. It says, could be the sprouting fur of a werewolf. But apparently the song's about hunting yeah. or something. <laughs> okay. And number eight, Ozzy Osbourne, Bark at the Moon. Ozzy Osbourne, Bark at the Moon. Wow, okay. So it says, Ozzy's uh, lycanthropic transformation in his first eagerly anticipated video made perfect sense in 1984 when the Prince of Darkness was reaching the zenith of his feral rampaging craziness. In 1999 fans could purchase oh yeah, a singing 18-inch doll of an extremely hearse-suit Ozzy, I guess Harry. I gotta see this thing. I'm searching for it right now. (laughs) Well, I think the doll plays part of Probably that song. I don't think he's singing. I don't think it sings. Jeremy's looking on eBay. See if he can get one. Yeah, I can't even find it though. Oh, just put Ozzy Werewolf Doll or something. That's what I did. Ozzy Wolf Doll and nothing came up. I'm seeing all kinds of Monster High stuff. Say Bark at the Moon though. (laughs) Ozzy Osbourne. There's a bat. (laughs) I found it on eBay. As he has, oh, is this it? Is it that? Yes. Yeah, uh, okay. Not very impressive, but. All right, let's see here. I now need to own one of these. Yeah, what are they going for? Uh, this one here is $99.99. Or best offer. Yeah. $61 of shipping. <laughs> nice. Where's the shipping from? Freaking Australia? Ken? I'm just kidding. I'm just <laughs> <No>. kidding. <laughs> uh, it's shipping from Texas. Why is it $61? That's what they do. That's ridiculous. Okay, so I've seen the doll. Okay. I, don't, I don't need it. Okay. Nor would I pay $100 for it. <laughs> so number seven, we have The Cramps. I was a teenage werewolf. I think I know that song. Yeah, this is a good song. It says the lead singer is channeling all sorts of agony and ecstasy with his animalistic ejaculations. All right. I had to blow my top under the blood red moon. Mm. That's one alert. Awesome. They were, they were a strange band. I actually saw them at City Gardens back in the 90s. Oh, that's cool. And unfortunately, Lux Interior, that was the singer's name. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I saw his penis. What? Yeah. Wow. He pulled down his leather pants in front of me. Wow. Well, in front of everybody. In front of just me. me. Yeah. <laughs> it's just me. No. Anyway. Okay, number six is Type O Negative, Wolf Moon. I know that song. I should tell you what Wolf Moon is about. Type O Negative frontman Pete Steele announced on a 1998 SonicNet chat, whatever that is. It's about a man who anytime engaging in... Oh, my God. I'm glad this is explicit podcast. Kids... Put your hands on your ears. Kristen, put your hands on your ears. <laughs> it's about a man who anytime engaging in oral sex with a menstruating woman turns into a werewolf. <laughs> nice. As much as I do transform after the act, it is into a... Okay, we're not gonna... <laughs> <laughs> you can listen to the song, so... <laughs> Number five is Thin Lizzy, Old Moon Madness. Yep. So this is a deeply charming, spooky song from the Thin Lizzy's 1971 New Day EP. Phil and I sitting us down at the fireside for a cautionary tale about a howling nocturnal beast. And he says, and before you can get him sussed, 
He's gone before dusk. That's one of the lyrics. Mm. Uh, Sticks. I don't know this song. Witch Wolf. I saw that on the list, and that didn't stand out as a song I knew either. So this is um, 1973, so early Sticks. This might be even like Dennis D. Young Sticks. It says there's screaming solos, energized harmonies, and rigorous double bass drumming, plus turns of phrase, presaging death metal lyric. And this is the lyric, the doer of all that's foul, raping the minds of infants, hmm. sower of unplanted seeds, <laughs> full moon warrior, doer of sordid deeds. And this author says, come sail away, it ain't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, number three is Rainbow, Run with the Wolf. And it's uh, Ronnie James Dio. Yep. I love uh, Rainbow, very underrated band. And some of the lyrics, things that snap and bite. And another lyric is footsteps on the white. Have a poetic quality. Has more of a poetic quality than the usual straightforward horror movie narratives. Yeah. Mid-tempo lupine anthem. Number two, and number GBH. Looks like a punk band. And it's called Lycanthropy. Lycanthropy. Um... Heavyweight punk UK 82 style and an audible influence on early Metallica, especially Hetfield's Yelp. Is it an early, is it his band? GBH. It doesn't say what year this is from. GBH was yeah. the name of the band? Well, it mentions uh, Hetfield. James Hetfield? Yeah. It says Yelp. Early Metallica. Early influence on early Metallica. Yeah, it's not. Oh, Okay. I guess they're saying the guy yelping in this song. Right. Uh, yeah, it's definitely not Metallica yeah. at all. Yeah. Bassist is Sean McCarthy. I don't know if that's any relation to Paul. <laughs> and then number one is Sonata Artica, Full Moon. And what's missing from this list is Werewolves of London. Yep. Somehow. So this is a Finnish pop power prog group. Somebody was drinking that pina colada. <laughs> And it says they have an abiding lupine fascination that dates back to this big hitter from their 1999 debut. It seemingly concerns a man who fears his approaching transformation into a werewolf. He fears that, but abandons plans to flee to a cornfield when he's seduced by a randy lady. So that does it for our list. And we're going to start into the Universal Monster films. We've got six films to talk about. I don't know if I said in the beginning, this is going to be a two-parter. Mm -hmm. So you're listening to part one. We're going to start. We're going to go down our list like uh, Jeremy and Kristen do on their podcast. Once we make a match, then we'll talk about that one. But we're going to go from six to one. We're going to take a little break and we'll be back. The very day we announced our engagement, he told me of his experiments. He said he was on the verge of a discovery so terrific that he doubted his own sanity. There was a strange look in his eyes. We Egyptians are not permitted to dig up our ancient dead. Only foreign museums. How did you know about the earrings in my room? Oh, I'm psychic. Every time I see a beautiful girl, I know all about her. Just like that. 
what's happened. I can't bear to look at it. Well, what's happened? I can't tell you. I can't. Oh, but you must. You must tell me. I have a right to know. Tell you we can learn more from it if it's a lie. Please, what is it you found? It sounds incredible, but it appeared to be human. It's the greatest find yet. Nothing compares to it. Okay, we're back, and we're going to get into the Universal Monster Movies. And we're going to start with our number six choice, and mine is The Mummy. My number six is also The Mummy. Oh, okay. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. So we're going to talk about The Mummy. It doesn't usually happen that way, folks, yeah. but... We got yeah. a we got an odd one this time around. You know, you had messaged me about a day before I finally watched this one because I wasn't quite complete yet. I think I had like three to go. And you you mentioned that you don't think you had ever seen this before. Yeah. All of the well, not all of them. I've seen two of the six before, mm-hmm. and one I think I've seen pieces of. So I was excited to just kind of do this in general and finally you know see the original universal monsters this was one of the ones that i had not seen and i'm very thankful this was the fifth of six that i watched Mm -hmm. we'll talk about it but man this one was brutal to get Mm -hmm. through okay very boring yeah i've only seen (laughs) i've only seen bits and pieces i don't think i mean these movies came out a long time ago so maybe at some point i did see it i don't know i don't remember it so what we're going to do is we're, I'm going to we're I'm going to tell you about the movie itself and then we're going to get into scene by scene. <laughs> okay. So this was released December 2nd, 1932, 73 minutes long. A lot of these movies are only about an hour and 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. The budget was 196,000. Wow. Some of these I couldn't find how much they made. I couldn't find this one. Now Rotten Tomatoes it's 7.9 out of 10 and a 78% audience score. And I think most of these movies were around 80 or more. Mm-hmm. So this was actually, I think, the lowest, but it still got 78%. That's pretty good. You know. Yeah. And the uh, cast is Boris Karloff as Ardeth Bay and Imhotep, and he's billed as Karloff in the movie, The Mummy. Mm-hmm. Zita jo- Johan, Johan, very beautiful woman, I have to say. Mm-hmm. She plays Helen Gro- Grovener <laughs> and Princess, I'm going to get these names because they're Egyptian, Ank Essen Aman. Yes, perfect. Yeah, yeah. okay. And then uh, not many notable people, actors, um, David Manners, Arthur Byron, Edward Va- Van Sloan, and Bramwell Fletcher, I thought was funny, as the ironically named Ralph Norton. Hmm. <laughs> which is, you know, Honeymooners, Ralph and Norton. Right. And, though. That's what I was saying during the movie a lot. Uh, <laughs> what I d- didn't know, I didn't know much about the movie, but uh, it's not based on a novel. It was commissioned as a new project. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Believe it or not, Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, also wrote a mummy novel. It came out in 1903 called The Jewel of the Seven Stars. 
Bram Stoker's book was also made into some movies, but not this one. Okay. So, the Mummy movie is inspired by the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922 and a legend about the curse of the pharaohs. Producer Carl Lemley, he commissioned uh, Richard Sayer to find a novel to form a basis for an Egyptian-themed horror film, just as the novels Dracula and Frankenstein inspired those movies. Sayer and writer Nina Wilcox wrote a nine-page treatment entitled Cagliostro. <laughs> And the story was set in San Francisco about a 3,000-year-old magician who survives by injecting nitrates. So, of course, this movie is not based on that. Lemiel hired John L. Balderstone to write the script. He was impressed with the, the nine-page treatment, and Balderstone had contributed to Dracula and Frankenstein he had also covered the opening of Tutankhamun's tomb for the New York world when he was a journalist, so he was more familiar with the well-publicized tomb opening, not opening, uh, <laughs> event. Uh, so filming began in September 1932 and scheduled for three weeks. Wow. Carlos's first day was spent shooting the mummy's awakening from his sarcophagus. And then we have makeup artist Jack Pierce, who I think had also worked on The Wolfman. He may come up again. Pierce began transforming Karloff at 11 a.m., applying cotton, collodion, and spirit gum to his face, clay to his hair, and wrapping him in linen bandages treated with acid and burnt in an oven. Wow. Finishing the job at 7 p.m., so that's eight hours, and Karloff finished his scenes at 2 a.m., and another two hours were spent removing the makeup. Wow. Now, I do have some music. The piece of classical music heard during the opening credits was taken from uh, Tchaikovsky's ballet, Swan Lake. And it was also used for the opening credits of Dracula and Murders in the Rue Morgue. So the Los Angeles Times was positive, although the film otherwise gained mixed critical reviews despite being a modest box office success. So let's go into the movie itself. And of course, being at number six, um, you know, it wasn't our favorite out of the Universal Monster films. I don't know, you know, for you, but I can safely say that I liked just about all of these. Mm -hmm. This one was the easiest one to put on my list, whereas some of the others in the middle were very difficult to you know, kind of determine what is three or four, whatever. You know, this was the one. <laughs> it was just, yeah. I don't know, I really struggled with this one a lot. <laughs> so we're going to go through the movie here. movie starts in 1921 at the British Museum Expedition. Now, I found it weird, this one, I think it's the, maybe the one of the first characters you see. His name is Sir Joseph Wemple. Mm -hmm. So remember... You know the game where you put that mouthpiece in your mouth and you try and say words? No. <laughs> <laughs> There's this thing you put in your mouth and you have to try and pronounce and the other person has to guess what words you're saying. Oh my goodness. When did this come out? Like 1960? No, no. <laughs> it's not a torture device. No, this came out like 10 years ago, 15. Okay. Maybe. No, I've never seen that before. So that's what that guy reminded me of when he tries to speak. So they find a mummy. He's 3,700 years old. Now, 
He doesn't look a day over 3,600, I thought. <laughs> his name is Imhotep. And I mentioned the one character, Ralph Norton. My favorite line from him is in the beginning when they're trying to figure out what happened to the mummy. He <laughs> says, maybe he got too gay with the Vestal Virgins in the temple. <laughs> and Dr. Muller, another character, goes, possibly. Like, real serious, like. Right. Now they find out there's death to anyone who opens the casket. Of course, they don't, you know, heed that warning. Dr. Muller says not to open it, but Ralphie opens it, and the mummy comes alive. There is a good scene, great scene where the mummy's exiting, and you can see the cloth from his wrapping trailing behind them. That's kind of creepy. Yep. And I always like these old black and white horror films. I find them... You know, have turn the lights out and watch these. I find them more creepy than, than anything. There's no blood and gore. In I guess hey, you don't even yeah. get the gore. It's, it's just, just the creepiness. Yeah. The suspense. Now, Ralph kind of loses it at this point. <laughs> he he tells Sir Joseph he went for a little walk. You should have seen his face. He's like very like nervous, like just or hyper. Then we move to 1932, and it's at the British Museum again. It says expedition. Uh, I guess it's a archaeological dig. Maybe I don't know. You know, of all the movies, this was the toughest one to keep up with because mm-hmm. it felt like they were jumping around a lot. Yeah. And it, <clears throat> the story just didn't, it didn't seem to flow consistently in comparison to the other five. It just, yeah, they all felt start to finish. Because there is some flashback yeah. stuff, but you had to figure out that they're, yeah, going back and forth. Now we meet some strange dude called Ardith Bay, and he's also an archaeologist. And he's found the location of some mummy chick. Mummy chick. <laughs> called Anksu Naaman. Naaman. And now we are in Cairo. Ardith Bay starts chanting over and over that name. And we see some uh, nice looking like uh, flapper girl or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's summoned to the museum her name is Helen Gross- Grossfener when she gets there it's closed she faints and wakes up in an archaeological house his name is Frank Wempel and he's the son of Sir Joseph that would be an archaeologist <laughs> <laughs> and Frank says you really want to know why I didn't take you to the hospital I think we know Frank. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Frank, we're on to you. Ardith Bay finds the home where Helen is, and he's visiting Sir Joseph. And uh, she's on the couch, couch resting, and he hovers over her. And somehow he doesn't scare her or creep her out. And she seems mesmerized by him. And he says, have we not met before, Mrs. Grosvenor? And she says, I don't think one would forget meeting you, Ardith Bay. (laughs) Nice. And then Helen mentions that she was at the museum the night before, and Ardith seems kind of taken aback as to why she would have been there. And then she kind of leaves. She's sort of under his spell, of course. 
And then we find the artist wants to scroll back the other archaeologists have possession of. And Dr. Moeller, he connects the dots and knows at this point, and I'm not sure most everyone who watched this for the first time figures out that Ardith Bay is the mummy who has come back to life. I didn't. Okay. I mean, he's got, you know, when they show the close-ups, it's weird. They show some close-ups of his face, and it's all wrinkly. Right. <laughs> but when it's not close-up, he looks normal. Right. And then Ardith kills Dr. or kills Sir Joseph, and some guy comes into Sir Joseph's office, and he burns the scroll. And he's known in the movie as the Nubian. <laughs> right. Frank and Dr. Muller thinks Sir Joseph burnt the scroll. And then they find out it wasn't really the scroll, only newspaper. <laughs> now, Helen is on the phone, and I almost forgot they had phones back in 1932. <laughs> <laughs> we find out she's on the phone with Ardith Bay, and he has this love pad, which is mostly old artifacts, and a reflecting pool. Okay. And somehow he was able to have a phone line put in <laughs> to get that call. Right. Right. I don't know how they got through the walls, you know, the stone walls to put the line in, but they did. And Ardith puts Helen in a trance as they look into the reflecting pool, which I also think turns into a hot tub at night. Because he says one sees strange fantasies in the water. Right. <laughs> and this is where the flashback comes in. And we see what happened to Imhoptep. <laughs> So his father dies, and he takes the scroll, or he steals it, and he wants to bring his father back to life. So these scrolls have powers, or the scroll. Now, he was caught and sentenced to death with the scroll buried with him, so no one could bring anyone back to life again. Helen goes back to the house, and Frank questions where she's been. She tells him she took the dog for a walk, but she comes back without the dog. Right. The dog is dead. We find out. And she's not sure how the dog died. That's like, that's animal abuse right there. But Frank, he comforts Helen and tells her it's going to be all right. And she wakes up in bed with nurses taking care of her. Now, she's still under the spell of Ardith and wants to escape. Dr. Muller tells Helen to go to him next time she gets the call. And they will destroy him. I guess meaning Ardith. Right. Now, I used to give away all the details of the movie, but I'm not gonna, we're not going to tell you the endings of these. Right. Okay? Good. So you have to watch it. I mean, the movie's 91 years old. You should see it at least once, I think. And I have here, you know, saying what we said before, the movie is okay, but not as good as the others. Not a lot going on in the movie. No. Very Except slow. two men fighting over Helen. A lot of bad overacting on the part of Zeta. But she is kind of nice to look at. And she kind of reminded me of Chloe Fineman from SNL. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this one was slow. It was tough to get through. And it didn't even have, you know, I feel like we'll talk about it with the other five, but there wasn't even good, like, sound effects or music or, you know, something mm -hmm. yeah. to even kind of appeal a lot of dead space. Yes. In the movie. Yes. And a lot of like just total silence at points where there's just no dialogue. There's nothing happening. Oh, yeah. That's right. In the beginning, I think when the mummy was coming alive and we see Ralph 
and it's silent for like a minute. Yeah, it, it felt like forever. He's here. looking at papers or something. I actually and, had to make sure because I had told you the DVD skipped on this one a couple yeah, times. Yeah, I had sure to make sure freeze. that it didn't freeze. Yeah, Correct. Yeah, <laughs> it felt like you said maybe a minute. That it felt yeah. like an eternity. Yeah, and I'm I was sitting there. I'm like, what is happening? What what is going on? <laughs> anyway, that was just my experience. So. Okay, so that was our number six, the mummy. Yeah, I I feel like we won't match from here on out okay. because I'm probably going to disappoint you with my okay. next one. It better not be what I think it is. Okay, you tell me your five. Number five, I have Dracula. Yeah, that's not mine. Now, do do I tell you my? Yep. Oh no. Yeah, my number five is the creature from the Black Lagoon. Wow. Okay. So we go so, to number. So four. we go to number four. Yep. The Invisible Man. I have the wolf man. Okay. <laughs> Number three, what do you have? Frankenstein. I have the wolf man. All right, so now we can talk about the wolf man, because we've matched on that one. <laughs> this is the one I'm most excited to talk about, I okay. think. First of all, I had no idea that the wolf man is a pervert. <laughs> <laughs> That doesn't come up in any of the Wolfman stories. Oh, hey, by the way, he's got this amazingly, you know, telescope that can zoom in on uh-huh. people and he's looking at them through their bedroom window. What was that? <laughs> <laughs> and then here's the thing. He doesn't even hide it. He goes into the pawn shop. I know you're going to talk about mm-hmm. it, but he's like, I want the earrings. You know, the ones you were wearing while you were looking in your mirror. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. And she still talks to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was kind of a good-looking guy, maybe. I don't know. I mean, For 1941. Look, yeah, he looked like he had money, and, he, you know, he mm-hmm. looked like he was, like, a charmer, but it was just so weird. I'm like, this guy's a pervert. He's literally telling you he's watching you get dressed, and you're still talking to him. Like, it's no big deal. So this was released on December 9th, 1941. It's 70 minutes long. It cost 180000 to make. And after a few months, the movie made one million. Mm-hmm. And for back then, that was incredible. Yep. It's got a 7.8 out of 10 and an 80% audience on Rotten Tomatoes. And the cast is Lon Chaney Jr. as Lawrence Larry Talbot, the Wolfman, the pervert. <laughs> <laughs> now, Claude Rains is Sir John Talbot. Mm-hmm. And he was in The Invisible Man. Yep. And then we got a bunch of people. Warren William, Ralph Bellamy, Patrick Knowles. And this is what I didn't know, and I've seen this movie many times, is that Bella Lugosi is in this. Yes. As the fortune teller, and he, and he also, I think, turns into a... says werewolf. Wolfman, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. Maybe he's heard in that scene, but... You know, the one... How did... I don't know when we could talk about it, so I'm just going to drop it here. <laughs> how did you determine how you were going to watch the movies? Like, did you pick an order? I picked the ones I wasn't that familiar with first. Okay. For some reason. Like the mummy creature, I don't even know if I've, I've probably seen it once a long time ago. Okay. I, that one and I even s- Invisible Man, I, have, I didn't see that many times. So the creature I save for last, because I've seen that a few times, okay. but the other five, I picked at random, mm-hmm. and this okay. was actually the first one that I watched. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this is one of my favorites. Like I said, it's by, yeah, number three. Now, 
this is interesting because the Wolfman has been analyzed as an allegory for puberty mm -hmm. in his 2012 book Horror and the Horror Film. This guy Cohen. <laughs> Wait, do I have this guy's name? No, I don't know. I just have Cohen wrote the fear of sexual p passion and its ability to bring chaos is part of the arsenal of anxiety inherent inherent to puberty and the werewolf does as has been widely noted grow hair and become subject to animalistic drives as if it were going through puberty but in this movie the character before he even becomes a werewolf i think has animalistic <laughs> drives um yeah. Uh, the Wolfman, as well as in Cat People from 1942, des desire is dangerous. The monster is one's animal nature out of control and making one behave like an animal. Mm -hmm. So the makeup in this, um, Lon Chaney, it says, did not undergo an on-screen facial transformation from man to wolf in the original film. The lap dissolve progressive makeups were seen only in the final 10 minutes and were presented discreetly. It says yeah. in the first transformation, Larry removes his shoes and socks. His feet are seen to grow hairy and become huge paws. That was a phenomenal scene. That mm -hmm. was one that I had noted to make sure to mention. Yeah. That, like, for the time, holds up to this day. That was creepy. I yeah. mean, the feet, the paws, like everything, it just looked so mm -hmm. genuine. It didn't yeah. look fake. I can't imagine seeing this in a theater back then. And yeah. Not ever, you know, seeing something like that before. Yep. His feet were, says, courtesy of uncomfortable boots made of hard rubber covered in yak hair. Oh, okay. And that's what they used was yak hair. Oh, all right. Um, I had to be itchy. <laughs> so the entirety of the makeup took five to six hours to apply and an hour to remove. Now, Jack Pierce, we talked about him with the first one. We talked about the mummy. He initially designed it for Henry Hall. There was a werewolf movie in 1935 mm -hmm. called Werewolf of London. And Hall didn't want to have his face... He wanted people to see his face. So he wanted to be recognizable, even in werewolf form. So they didn't do the whole facial thing that they did in the Wolfman. Right. So Hull, I guess, originally designed so that his face was covered, but he was ordered to design a second version. So his face was recognizable in that first movie. And then he, then he recycled the original design for the 1941 movie. Uh, now, Cheney claimed he was forced to sit motionless for hours as the scenes were shot frame by frame. At times, he claimed he was left to remain sitting while the crew broke for lunch, and also uh, he was very equivocal about using the bathroom. Hmm. Cheney said special effects men drove tiny finishing nails into the skin on the sides of his hands so they would remain motionless during close-ups. Wow. Although in the movie Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, where he reprised his role, you know, as the Wolfman, he was allowed to take a two-hour break during the filming. Now, there was a different um, makeup designer for that one. So a plaster mold was made to hold his head still, 
as his image was photographed and his outline drawn on panes of glass in front of the camera. Cheney then went to makeup man Jack Pierce's department, where Pierce, using grease paint, a rubber snout appliance, and a series of wigs glued layers of yak hair, they glued it to Cheney's face. Cheney would return to the set, line himself up using the panes of glass as a reference, and several feet of film was shot. Uh, then Cheney would return to the makeup department. A new layer would be applied to show the transformation being further along. So he had to sit, then go to the other room or whatever. Right. <laughs> Have wow. more applied, then go sit. Wow. Very, uh, very different than, you know, now they just do it with computers. Yep. <laughs> and he would have to do this a half a dozen times. And then uh, after the movie's success, uh, Lon Chaney Jr. would uh, reprise his role as the Wolfman in four sequels, beginning with Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, 1943. I was thinking next year we could do some of the (laughs) sequels. That would be fun. Yeah. I haven't seen, as I said, for five of these, it's actually the first time I've ever seen them. I've seen bits and pieces here and there. Or no, I think I've seen two. I've not at all seen any of the sequels, so that would mm-hmm. definitely be fun. Yeah, I have the um, Universal, the, the sets. I loaned Jeremy my movies. Mm-hmm. So I had to go find <laughs> the movies then. Luckily, there were uh, most of them were on Amazon Prime, and I did find a website that has a lot of movies on it, and it's it's internet archive or something oh, interesting okay and it looks like it's legit it it doesn't look like one of those that is you know until they get caught they take it down right it's got music yeah. so they're movies on the supposedly public domain but some are questionable like frankenstein <laughs> right and those um okay so we're gonna go into the movie itself now right off the bat i like the um you know i own a print shop so i'm into like you know, fonts type styles. Mm-hmm. I love the Wolfman letters. Okay. They're kind of hand drawn, like Harry. Now, I thought the beginning was a little odd, too, because they show the characters and their names like it was a TV show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like a TV show from the 70s or something, you know? Yeah. So we see Larry Talbot, Lon Chaney Jr., pulling up to a huge house. Uh, some old friends meet him inside, and it appears he hasn't been back in a while. And he comes back after the death of his brother in a hunting accident. And next we see Larry looking through a telescope. And you're right, Jeremy. Here are my notes. (laughs) And honing or horning in on some woman who lives above an antique shop. Now he goes into town to the antique shop. And he now creeps out the woman. Her name is Gwen. After he tells her he wants earrings she has in her room. Now, she also seems a little unfazed. What I'm really looking for is uh, something half-moon-shaped with spangles on it, golden. Oh, I'm sorry. We haven't any like that just now. Oh, yes, you have. Don't you remember? On your dressing table up in your room. In my room? Yes. Would you mind getting them for me? Oh, she does, right? Yeah. Unfazed. Yeah. And then Larry buys this cool cane with a wolf head. Yeah. Which... You can get this cane. I know. And it's very expensive. It is. I think it's like $800. It is a cool looking cane, though. I was saying to my wife, you know, after I watched this, that, you know, if I ever need a cane, I'm getting that. 
<laughs> it reminded yeah. me of Stephen King's Storm of the Century. Yeah. They yep. have a similar mm-hmm. cane in that movie. Yeah. Yeah, I think that has a wolf on it. Yep, yeah. it does. I even have here, when I need a cane, I said, like that or like the one in Storm of the Century. Yep, there you go. Know. Perfect. So Larry tries to smooth talk Gwen, wants her to go for a walk at 8 p.m. that night, and she kept, she keeps saying no. Now, Larry's dad, who he weirdly calls Sir, now his name is Sir John Talbot, Well, we're back at the house, I guess now. Yeah. He's talking about the legend of the werewolf. And then we see Gwen closing up the antique shop, and Larry comes out of the shadows. Yeah. Still wanting to walk with Gwen. And now we first meet her friend Jenny, Jenny Williams. She's Gwen's friend who joins Larry and Gwen to get their fortune told. Mm-hmm. That's what they decide on. And I guess Gwen needed a chaperone, not a chaperone, but, you know, wanted to bring her friend with her. Right. She doesn't know this Larry guy who literally has admitted to spying on her. (laughs) (laughs) This is where we first hear of Wolfbane Mm because they come across the plant. Yep. And they're walking in the fog. It's very foggy. I think in this, in this whole movie, maybe, I don't know. It's out in the woods somewhere. Yeah. And there's, I guess they're gypsies out there. Something because that fortune teller was scary. (laughs) (laughs) And Jenny goes in first. She's at the table, and we see she has the wolfbane with her, like it's in her hand or something. Larry and Gwen go for a walk while Jenny's getting her fortune read, and he tells Gwen about the telescope. So you're a fortune teller? Uh-huh. Is that how you knew about the earrings? Well, not exactly. You see, a telescope has a mighty sharp eye. It brings the stars so close that you feel you can almost touch them. A telescope? Sure. And it does the same thing to people in their rooms. That is, if you point it in the right direction. Oh, you wouldn't. Well, now, I was only testing the refractor. And she says, I'll be sure to draw the curtains next time, I guess. Right, right. Uh, Gwen tells Larry she's engaged. I noticed the fortune teller has a star on his forehead. And I think the star, Jeremy, foretells the formation of the band Kiss. <laughs> really? Yeah, I do. You know, Star Child. Jenny doesn't like the fortune teller that the fortune teller looked worried when she asked him when she'll be married. He looks at her hand and sees the star again, which I take it means she doesn't have long to live or she's going to be a Paul Stanley groupie in the future. <laughs> but she does run off. She runs off into the woods and she gets attacked by a wolf. Yep. Now Larry pulls the wolf off of Jenny and he in turn gets bit by the wolf. And then he violently beats the wolf with his cane. Yeah, which was bad acting. I'm just going to say yeah. it. He swings the cane, but then it, he's tired out or whatever. And <laughs> he's just almost like not even doing anything. Uh-huh. And you still hear like this thud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then the wolf dies or whatever. And he wakes up. Well, he doesn't know. look too healthy. Yeah. They didn't have uh, gyms back then. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You wonder what they did back then. Did they, they didn't go jogging. They lived. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. So the weird gypsy woman shows up and she helps Gwen and Larry back to the house. Dr. Lloyd and some other guys go out to find that Jenny is dead by a tree and they find Larry's cane by her body. Now, Larry's father believes Larry's story that he tried to save Jenny and got attacked by a wolf. And we also discover that the fortune teller also died. Yeah. So if you put two and two together. 
know, Jenny's mother wants to confront Gwen at the antique store as to why she let Jenny go out into the woods alone. So Larry shows up to talk to Gwen and she wants to know um, what happened. They also think Larry killed the fortune teller. Right. Apparently he was battered to death and they think later beat with a cane. And I think the fortune teller's name is Bella. Yeah, I believe so too. <laughs> Bella Lagos. Gwen's fiance tells her to be careful around Larry. He doesn't like Larry. Right. Because of course he's, you know, maybe <laughs> he knows by now he's trying to hone in. He's trying to steal his wife, his yeah. future wife. Yeah. Now there's some party going on in the woods and Larry makes his way over to the fortune teller's uh, little encampment there. Bella's mother tells Larry that it was Bella who bit him in the form of a wolf. She tells Larry that a silver bullet can only kill a werewolf, a knife or a stick with a silver handle, and she gives him a charm that can break the spell. And Larry doesn't believe what she's telling him. So he runs into Gwen and tells her about the charm. It's a pentagram. He tells Gwen that the gypsy told him that he's a werewolf. He gives Gwen the charm so she will be protected, protected just in case. The gypsies are making a ruckus. So all of a sudden, the gypsies are... You know, they're running around and looks like they're packing it in. Mm -hmm. And uh, Gwen runs off. Larry goes back to his room and he starts to get worried, a worried look on his face as he starts getting hairier and hairier. And that's when he transforms into the werewolf. Now he goes back out into the foggy woods and kills someone who looks like he's just done burying someone. And the villagers hear the wolf howl and they soon find the dead man. And they determine right away that he was killed by a wolf. And Larry wakes up in his bed with his clothes on. And I never figured out how, you know, what happens to the clothes. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, he was fully dressed when he transformed back. Right. It's like the Incredible Hulk. Shouldn't think. they just fall apart? <clears throat> or rip the apart? Incredible Hulk, you know, when he transformed back, mm -hmm. he wasn't naked. Right. You know? Or his clothes weren't all stretched out. They still fit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Larry comes downstairs and his father tells him a gravedigger got killed by a wolf last night. And Larry looks worried. I, and then I swear he calls his dad John. <laughs> I, I didn't notice that. <laughs> yeah. He's not calling him sir anymore. Uh, after a church service, Larry is back at the house and asks the guys gathered around if they believe in werewolves. And they don't really believe a man can turn into a wolf. So Dr. Lloyd thinks Larry needs to be put away. But his father's very adamant that he stays at the house. Larry transforms again, and we don't see the transformation like the first time, but he's in the woods and his foot gets caught in a bear trap. And great scene of him flailing around. Yeah. Gypsy woman comes upon him and is saying some verses of a gypsy prayer. And we see the werewolf's feet transform back to Larry's feet. And she gets him out of the trap. And Larry goes back to the antique shop, which is closed. It's in the middle of the night. And he starts throwing rocks at Gwen's window to wake her up. And Gwen comes down and tells Larry he has to go away. And you can tell at this point, I think she really cares for him, even though she has a fiancé. Right. You know, yep. F that fiancé. Gwen looks down at her hand and sees the star. So Gwen also will be meeting up with the star child in the future. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Paul Stanley. Interesting. <laughs> It's in Paul's biography, by the way. Oh, okay. Yeah, about Gwen and Jenny. Uh, so we finally find out what the star actually means. The person who is cursed will see a star in the palm of his or her hand, and they're going to be the next victim, which is kind of cool. 
Yeah. Well, not cool for the person that's going to die, but I mean, a cool concept. And that's why this fortune teller saw a star in the palm of Jenny's hand. And she was not to meet Paul Stanley, but to meet her death by a werewolf. So Larry's dad ties him to a chair and he tells his dad, and he calls him dad this time, <laughs> to take the cane. And we're not going to tell you how it ends. Does the werewolf kill Gwen? Is the werewolf killed and mounted on a wall in John Talbot's house? Do Larry and Gwen run off together? And our next scene at a Kiss concert in 1976. <laughs> so you'll have to watch. Only I could put the Wolfman and Kiss together. So there we go. <laughs> so that was the Wolfman. Anything else, Jeremy? No, this one, and it was number four on my list, but I did enjoy it, even though it kind of landed in that middle area. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the makeup. I love the look of, like I said, the, the feet and the legs getting hairy and yeah. the paws. And they just, they locked in on, I want to say it wasn't even up to the knee. It was from like the shin down and it just had such a visual effect to me that yeah. you can't replicate. It was really good. You know, I didn't know the Wolfman was a pervert. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was an interesting little tidbit for me. Mm-hmm. But no, overall, this was this was the first one that I watched, and it definitely got me in the zone to keep watching the movies moving forward. Yeah. If I would have started with The Mummy, I might not have been in that zone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we go down the list again. So we're on number two. What was your number two? Number two, I had The Creature from the Black Lagoon. So that was my number five. So we can cover that one if you so want. So we'll cover that one and then we'll continue on. We'll leave your number two a mystery for yes. part two. <laughs> okay, so The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Like I said, that was my number five. It was one of my... I know a lot of people like this movie. I just didn't like it as a whole. I, I was amazed at the costume. It's one where there's not really makeup, but it's a, an entire costume. Right. And I heard that they were two... Well, first of all, the creature underwater is a different actor than the one on land. And also, I heard the costumes are a little different, I guess, so that he could walk. Maybe the feet were different. I don't know. So this is from 1954. And I love 1950s horror movies, creature movies. That's got 80% Rotten Tomatoes. I don't have the other rating on this. Now, this cost 500000 to make, so this is one of the more expensive ones. But it made, I've heard, anywhere between $1.3 and $3 million on this one. So you have Richard Carlson as Dr. David Reed, Julia Adams as Kay Lawrence, Richard Denning, Dr. Mark Williams. And I always found this guy's name funny. His name is Whit Bissell. <laughs> Dr. Edwin Thompson. Whit Bissell... I have here not related to the Bissell vacuum cleaner. (laughs) He was also in I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, and Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Okay. And then we have Rico Browning as the underwater gill man, uh, the creature, and Ben Chapman as the on-land gill man. Okay. Now, this was filmed in 3D originally. We're talking 1950s. Right. And it was projected by the polarized light method. The, so the audience wore what they called viewers with gray polarizing filters, similar to the viewers most commonly used today. And because 
The brief 1950s 3D film fad had peaked in mid-1953, and it was fading in early 54. Many audiences actually saw the film in 2D, which is the regular way. Right. And typically the film was shown in 3D in large downtown theaters, and the smaller neighborhood theater showed the regular version. Now, in 1975, uh, the movie was released to theaters in the red and blue glasses, the 3D format, and which was also used for a 1980 home video release on beta and VHS. A producer, William Allen, was attending a 1941 dinner party during the filming of Citizen Kane, in which he plays a reporter, when Mexican cinematographer Gabriel Figaro told him about the myth of a race of half-fish, half-human creatures in the Amazon River. So Alan wrote story notes titled The Sea Monster 10 years later using Beauty and the Beast as inspiration. Wow. And following the success of the 3D film House of Wax in 1953, Jack Arnold was hired to direct the film in the same format. And the designer of the approved Gill Man was Disney animator Millicent Patrick. Though her role was deliberately downplayed by makeup artist Bud Westmore, who for half a century received sole credit for the creature's conception. That's what they did to women back then. Right. That's sad. It is. Jack Kevin, who worked on The Wizard of Oz and made prosthetics for amputees during World War II, created the bodysuit while Chris Mueller Jr. sculpted the head. And then Ben Chapman portrayed the Gilman for the majority of the scenes shot at Universal City, California. The on-water scenes were filmed at Park Lake on the Universal backlot. So that wasn't even a... Well, I guess, is that a lake? That might be a lake. It says Park Lake. Yeah, I guess it was probably, a lake. yeah. Maybe a small lake. So the costume made sitting impossible for Chapman for the 14 hours of each day that he wore it, and it overheated easily. Due to these difficulties, Chapman often stayed in the studio backlot late, <laughs> frequently requesting to be hosed down. He also could not see very well while wearing the headpiece, which caused him to scrape Julie Adams' head against the wall when carrying her in the grotto scenes. Wow. Now, Rico Browning played the Gilman in the underwater shots, and those were filmed in Wakula Springs, Florida. While filming underwater, Browning reportedly held his breath for up to four minutes at a time. It's crazy. <laughs> and he said in a, in a 2013 interview, if you're not doing anything at all, four minutes is possible, but not if you're moving in the water. If you're swimming fast or fighting, you use up a lot of oxygen and it cuts it down to at the most two minutes. That makes sense, but mm. I would have never thought about that. As far as the music, of all the motion pictures, Henry Mancini helped to score during his seven-year tenure as a staff composer at Universal International, beginning with the Glenn Miller story and ending with Tony Curtis's The Great Imposter. His work in Creature was his personal favorite. So I found an article on a website called LostStory.net where a man by the name of John Stanley says that while attending a media junket for Revenge of the Pink Panther in 1978, Henry talked to him about the creature from the Black Lagoon's musical score. Mancini said, let me explain why I dig the creature so much. It was all pretty obvious music for those Universal films. There was never anything subtle about the creature from the Black Lagoon or the revenge of the creature or the creature walks among us. Just so you'll see where I'm coming from, I also scored the animal pictures, the Bonzo films, 
the Francis the Talking Mule flicks with Donald O'Connor, and something called Kelly and Me about a German shepherd performing vaudeville with Van Johnson. Mancini went on, but you have to understand, this was a fabulous training ground. It was a wonderful way to spend an apprenticeship. It was where I labored in the vineyards, yes, but all the time I was learning. Without all that experience, I know I never would have become the composer I became once Peter Gunn and Blake Edwards came into my life. It was the greatest learning experience any composer could ask for. So that's what he said about Creature. Very cool. And now we're going to get into the movie itself. This was the only one involved with water. Yeah. I mean, that seems obvious, but that was, I think, a lot of the appeal for me, why I had it ranked so high. Because seeing those scenes, both above water and underwater, back in that time, just... Mm-hmm. It's amazing to me. I thought the quality was really good for what it is. Oh, yeah, to shoot underwater. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I guess that maybe kind of favored my opinion in a sense, but at the same time, just the look of the creature, the story that it told, the videography, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess you could say, the, the camera work. Yeah. And even the music works well with the film. So that was a lot of my appeal for ranking it so high i think it's so long low on mine is because some of the other ones are just my favorites mm-hmm. and not having seen this like i said i'm pretty sure i've seen it a long time ago right but some of the other ones i watch every year even the sequels yeah and i have to see some of these sequels too which i haven't seen from the creature and if if you want some great like dvd sets there are the collections of all six of the movies that we're going to be talking about. And they not only have the original film, but they also have the sequels. Of course, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is on a couple of them. Right. Because Dracula's in that, the Wolfman. So the movie starts with some guy talking about how the earth began. We see some weird-ass footprints on the beach, and there's explosions. And then the movie, I don't remember this, but I have, the movie jumps to 15 million years later. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we're introduced to Dr. Mai, who discovers a skeletal fish-like hand. It's just sticking out of the rocks. Yeah, like the scales of the fin type thing. Yeah. (laughs) And then we see an actual fish-like hand come out of the water. There's some dramatic music. We already know something's lurking in the water. Now Kay, she's out on a boat with Dr. Um, Mai and her boyfriend, Dr. David Reed who's scuba diving. I have to say that the underwater scenes don't match up exactly with the quality, I think, of the film of the... I I think because it had to be filmed differently. Right. It seemed a little bit more grainy to me. Yeah, I mean, I get it. I mean, they had to splice it in and stuff. Right. So David uh, comes up to meet his old teacher, Dr. May. Dr. May shows David a photo of something he found in a limestone deposit. And that's, I guess that's the rock formation we saw in the beginning and it's funny but Kay has incredible vision since she's driving the boat and she can also see the photo david is holding without even looking at the photo right notice right (laughs) yeah i think that one gets pointed out as a blooper (laughs) a lot they head to the main biology main as the state uh institute to examine the hand and they try to speculate what kind of creature this came from and they mention a plasticine man, and I guess this man's made out of modeling clay. 
uh, was it an amphibian? Was it a fish hand? And this is where David then gets a little too scientific for me. He talks about fish adapting to the surface and then visiting the moon. I don't even know what he's talking about at this point. He just loves fish. Right. I think maybe even more than Kay. More and more we're learning the meaning and the value of marine research. This lungfish, the bridge between fish and the land animal. Thousands of ways nature tried to get life out of the sea and onto the land. This one failed. He hasn't changed in millions of years. Someday spaceships will be traveling from Earth to other planets. Our human beings going to survive on those planets. The atmosphere will be different. The pressures will be different. Now, Kay reminds me of Nancy from Stranger Things a little bit. Oh, okay. I can see that. Um, now, next we see the creature's hand again. And not the detached one, but the one attached to the creature. And I have the scene is out of Friday the 13th. Dramatic music, camera zoom, zooming up to a tent. I don't know if you noticed that. It reminded me of the old, like, especially Friday the 13th. Yeah. More so like a cabin, but not a tent, but just right. camping. No, I can see that for sure. Now, we still don't see the creature in its entirety, but his arm and his hand. We now see his arm. I also figured out that the, the creature is making noises, and I'm positive this is a pig. <laughs> it could be like the because no they did take animal noises like even i think i heard godzilla was like a lion or something like that okay and they distort the voice or the vocals it's i mean when you think back it's amazing what they did to make mm -hmm. some of the stuff yeah you know truly unique you hear those sounds and you don't think of a lion or a pig or whatever you think of they made this creature <laughs> yeah they had to be really creative. Yeah. That's why I'm totally against a lot of the AI stuff. Yes, I agree. Because you're not really being creative. You're trying to do away with that, with the writer, you know, with movies. Well, and I love, we've mentioned it on our podcast before, and I know this is going to cross over, but Terrifier 2. Mm -hmm. Have you seen what they did for the ending scene, that carnival that they end up at? No. That's... Damien Leone, or Leone, however you say it, mm -hmm. he's posted, that was actually like a diorama. Oh, okay. And they were able to zoom in mm -hmm. and make it look like this big, huge oh, wow. attraction. I'll have to check that it out. It was like a $10, you know, <laughs> cardboard <laughs> cutout type mm -hmm. thing. And it's brilliant. And a lot of independent filmmakers, mm -hmm. because they don't have all the money that Hollywood has to make sounds or do scenes, whatever the case may be, you see some of that brilliance come out when they have to get very creative and, you know, nickel and dime in a sense. Now, some of it is amazing. Some of it can be used for good. Mm -hmm. Next, we are on a boat along the Amazon. The guy driving the boat, Lucas, looks like a character out of a Popeye cartoon, I think. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Yeah. Now we get more scientific mumbo jumbo from David. He's pretty smart, if I have to say. Mm-hmm. Now, they come upon the encampment where Louise was killed by the creature. Kay is standing by the water, and the creature tries to grab her leg. But David yells for her, and she slinks away without it touching her. So they don't notice the creature. Right. And then we go to eight days later, and they've been excavating this whole time. And David can't stop talking. 
and he wants to explore farther down the river. Now, Bluto, I mean Lucas, <laughs> steps up and tells him about a mysterious place called the Black Lagoon. So they head down there. They travel a bit, and it's almost like a Disney riverboat ride. And at one point, they stop the boat, and David and Mark decide to dive down into the uh, lagoon to collect some rock specimens. And it's where we see that Dr. Mark Williams might have feelings for Kay. So watch out, David. And as Mark and David are underwater and collecting rocks, we all of a sudden see the creature briefly, and it's the first time we see his face and his body. The guys resurface, and when they go below ship, Kay goes for a swim in the Black Lagoon. And pretty soon we see the creature spot Kay, and he starts swimming along with her, behind and underneath her. I love this scene. Right. And Kay does not at any point see the creature. And Kay is now standing in the water, and the creature touches her foot, and she dives down again, and the creature hides behind some seaweed. I don't know if she felt the creature, or maybe he didn't, like, actually touch her foot, but he was reaching out. And Kay swims back to the ship after Lucas yells out to her that she's too far out. And the creature, we find out, was following her to the boat, and he gets trapped in a net that they had set in the water. Yep. And the boat starts rocking back and forth, and the creature frees itself. And then when they bring up the net, they find the creature has lost one of its uh, claw nails. So David and Mark go back down. Mark has a harpoon this time. And they soon spot the creature, and they're chasing after him. Now, I think it's funny at one point that you're being chased by two humans. One has a harpoon. And you decide you I mean, it's a creature, right? I don't right. know how smart he is. But I noticed he was doing a little backstroke action. You know, he was pretty relaxed, trying to get away from them. Right. So David and Mark come back up on the ship, and they tell the others what they saw. And David has taken a photo, but the photo is not no good. It's just a bunch of seaweed. And as they're looking at the photo, Chico is attacked on the ship by the creature and thrown overboard. Mm-hmm. And Which was actually, that was a cool scene. Mm-hmm. It, that didn't look fake. Yeah. To me, you know. He like tackled him. Yeah. yeah. So Lucas suggests they use some white powder he uses to catch fish. It paralyzes them. Did he ever hear of a fishing pole? Cocaine was better? I don't know. It sounds like cheating, you know? I mean, apparently Lucas likes to drug fish instead of catching them the old-fashioned way. So at first, uh, you don't think the white powder is working. Since that night, they're on the boat, and the creature tries to grab Kay, and he swims off, and they shine a light onto the creature. David and Mark dive down where they last saw the creature, and it's an underwater cave. And I like how they shine the light on the creature, and he's just standing there. Mm-hmm. Hello. Yeah. I don't know. He's like standing up in the water. So they go into this underwater cave and uh, the creature comes back up on the other side and he attacks one of the the guys that I guess were on the boat and he tries to carry Kay off. Creature finally collapses mm-hmm. after all this time. Now this is kind of creepy. They put him in some enclosed area under the boat and he's looking up through there. It's kind of freaky. Yes, it is. You know, with his mouth, a gap. So as Dr. Thompson is relaxing, the creature gets out and attacks him. A lantern lights him on fire, but he jumps in the water and takes off. So the creature escapes. Again, we're not going to tell you the ending. Nope. But there's, like I said, great underwater scenes with the creature. I think it's amazing that the costume stays in place without any issue underwater. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I don't know, you know, back then how good the quality was or anything. I'm assuming it was probably made of some kind of rubber or like scuba diving type gear. 
but you don't ever see it doesn't ever look like it's not what it's supposed to be i i guess i can't explain it all that well but because if if it is rubber for example when it's wet i gotta assume that costume gets super heavy for for rico to you know have to wear and yeah i don't know how heavy this suit was. have on but he's swimming and it looks fast it looks real so i was just i was yeah. amazed at some of the cinematography of this film one of the last scenes k gets grabbed by the creature i thought it was funny because the way it was filmed it looks like they're falling into some pit into hell. Hmm. It just, I mean, I don't know. You know, the ocean is pretty, you know, deep, but <laughs> just yep. the way it was filmed. Yep, for sure. So you'll have to watch it to find out. Does Kay and the creature go off into the underground cave and get married? <laughs> Does the creature pass out from all those paralyzing drugs and end up homeless on the streets of Chicago? I don't know. You know, you're, was that it for the creature? Well, one more thing. I was, I was impressed about the costume again, about how the gills moved yeah. also on his neck. So, yeah. Um, your scenarios. I feel like we're doing a Rocky and Bullwinkle episode here. Don't miss us next time. Where <laughs> yeah. does Bullwinkle get, you know, clobbered by an anvil? Or... <laughs> Tune in next time. <laughs> and actually, we're going to say, so this ends it for part one. And you're going to have to tune in for the rest. Next time. If you're listening to this now... The next one, I'm hoping to put these out one day after another, but it could be a week after the other. Ooh, so, ooh, the suspense. Which is brutal. Yeah. So you have to find out what the other three movies were. Well, because you and I have both said every movie at this point, I think, in some mm-hmm. way, shape, or form in our rankings. So the listeners mm-hmm. should be able to put together the three <laughs> movies, but they also know at this point, because I'm keeping some Why notes. Why didn't give you my two and my one? Correct. Yeah. I'm keeping some notes here, though. <laughs> some of my bottom ones are some of your tops. Okay. The creature was my number two, and it yeah. was one of your bottoms. So <laughs> okay. we're, we're very opposite on our rankings, which yeah. is good. Yeah. So thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, if you want to email us, uh, if you're in a band musician and you have uh you know some recordings from the last couple years or you want us to check out your band check out your music it's uh no that's k-n-o-w good music podcast at gmail.com and also check out jeremy's horror podcast horror con lounge yep they put them out every other week interviews now we're going back to weekly oh weekly yes Probably by the time this is out, they'll have their Saw review of the Saw movies. So check that out. Yeah, we're going to drop this. This is actually going to be a bonus episode for us. Because even though Rob isn't on the HorrorCon Lounge, he listens to it. He promotes it. We promote no good music on our podcast when we can. Yeah. And this is going to be one. I think Kristen and I are going to talk a little bit. And then we're going to utilize the reviews. So we Mm -hmm. might remove the music stuff. But we're definitely going to just let it fly mm-hmm. you and i talking about you know the universal monsters because i've yep. been wanting to do this for a while yeah i was surprised jeremy suggested yeah and um kristen doesn't like black and white movies yeah. she's been very adamant about that and i have something about my son is 20 kristen's what 30 okay so it's, you know 10 years older but my son doesn't like black and white movies yeah i guess they're too I don't know. I was never like that when I grew up. Yeah, it doesn't... We had, we had color TV and... 
movies were in color, but I like the black and white ones. Yeah, it doesn't know. bother me at all. Yeah. So. I mean, unless it's a super boring movie, but that could happen in color and I'll turn it off too. So, yeah, but I pitched the idea to her and she didn't want any part of it. She's like, no, but why don't you do it with Rob and we'll put it on our podcast. So, Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. So she wasn't even mad or upset or anything. She actually encouraged us to do Mm -hmm. this. So that's why I had asked with, you know, your permission for us to drop it, but you might see two episodes in a week because this is going to be a bonus episode for our show. So you'd be hearing us here and there and everywhere. everywhere, So, (laughs) So thanks for listening and never forget to turn off that TV and turn up the music unless you're watching uh, horror movies and you turn the TV on. Yeah. And turn the music up still. (laughs) (laughs) You'll hear us again soon. All right. You've been listening to No Good Music. Exit music by the band 99%. Today's show is produced and edited by Rob J. Lilly and recorded at the Did You Say 7 Studios in Washington, New Jersey. You can find No Good Music on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Pandora, and almost anywhere you listen to podcasts. 